Good evening. Oh, how many of you stayed? You're so brave. I'm so excited. <laughs> uh, cold weather or not, rainy weather, snow, it's just good to be here with you all. And a new year and a new Bible study, uh, studying the parables of Jesus. And uh, because this is our first week um, to study the parables, and I know they're a little hard to understand, um, I wanted to start out um, with just a couple of things before we get into the parable of the sower. First of all, I wanted us to talk about um, how parables work. And then secondly, I wanted to talk about just a little some Bible study skills on how to um, interpret and read and understand the parables. So, um, in order to get a, an idea of how parables work, I got it in my crazy head to try to write a parable of my own. <laughs> yeah, you should be laughing. <laughs> uh, so, I'm going to tell it to you. Please don't compare it to Jesus because it's just an illustration. Um, okay, ready? So, once upon a time... A certain North Texas woman admired her neighbor's garden and decided that she wanted a lovely garden of her own. Knowing nothing about gardening, but undeterred, she drove herself to her local Home Depot and she brought back some lovely pallets of flowers, carefully selected for their drought tolerance. And then with a vision of, in her head of what her garden should look like, she spent hours digging holes in her hard black clay soil beneath her favorite oak tree, into which she placed her lovely flowering plants. And then she repacked that hard black clay soil and mashed it in around the flowers and then watered them thoroughly. At least she knew that much about gardening, right? Well, with aching back and sore arms, she left her labor satisfied that she would enjoy her beautiful flowers for months to come. A few days later, however, to her great disappointment, her flowers were wilting and her plants were languishing, and it didn't seem to matter how much she watered them. Within just a few weeks, there was no trace of her flowers or plants at all. She who has ears to hear, let her hear. <laughs> now, what was the point of that parable? Um, some of you who know me may be slightly suspicious that that really wasn't a parable, that it was probably a true story. <laughs> and I'm very embarrassed to say that, yes, it was. <laughs> but, but what did we learn, aside from the fact that I'm an idiot? <laughs> well, on a literal level, the main point is, if you want a beautiful garden, but you don't know how to garden, do your homework first, right? I mean, at least Google something. Listen to the dirt doctor on the radio. Ask your neighbor how she got that beautiful garden, despite her clay soil. But on a wisdom level, maybe my parable wasn't about soil and plants at all. It just depends on my audience and what I'm trying to communicate. Perhaps my story is about laying the proper groundwork for accomplishing something new or something significant in your life. Maybe it's about not comparing your life with your neighbors and trying to do what they do. Parables are meant to work on a wisdom level, but only if you're able to hear them that way. Only if you're open to learning something new, to doing life differently. 
And that's why Jesus told his parables after all. He wants to change our lives in significant ways. Our perspectives, our attitudes, our relationships with God and with others. Ultimately, he wants to transform us into his likeness. But we have to have ears to hear. We have to let God's word do its work in our hearts so that it can work its way into our lives. And that's what our lesson is about tonight. That's what this is all about. It's about letting God's word do its work in our hearts so it can work its way into our lives. Now, because the parables are a little hard to understand, I want to go through just some basic um, guidelines for understanding them. And then we'll walk through the parable of the sower. We're going to talk about the four soils, and then we're going to end our time with some reflection and prayer. So, oh, by the way, I know um, a lot of you aren't note takers, and that's just fine, but at the end, I would love for you to have a pen and a piece of paper, so you might just kind of get that ready. Um, Okay, so first of all, to understand any part of God's Word, it's really important to pray and ask Him to open your eyes and give you ears to hear. And then next, we observe everything in the text, okay? Um, the basic elements of the parable, we observe the general context, and that means we re read what comes before it and we read what comes after it. Um, we get a feel for the setting, a feel for the audience that Jesus is talking to, and we identify the characters and the elements um, that are in the story, but always resist the urge to make every single character and element stand for something other than what it is. Um, there is a whole history of interpretation of the parables that allegorized every single element, and it stretched it just way beyond what Jesus had intended. So... Um, next, we try to read it or hear the parable from the perspective of the original hearers as much as we can. And that's not easy because we are separated by time and culture, right, from first century Galilee. And so we have to slow down a little bit. We've got to do our homework a little bit and try to figure out what their lives were like. And Amy, if you were here last week, Amy helped us a lot with this as she talked about what um, life would have been like um, back in the day in the Galilee area. Um, fourth, we look for the main point or points to the parable. Um, and often that's revealed through um, a shocking statement, a stark contrast, um, a crisis that happens in the story. And then finally, of course, we reflect on that point or points and allow it to do its work in our hearts so it can work its way into our lives because that's how we change. So with that, before we get into the parable of the sower, let's stop and pray. Lord Jesus, may we be like many of those on the shore of the Sea of Galilee back in that day, many of those who were eager to hear and understand what Jesus would say to them. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. And we ask it in your name. Amen. All right, so now we're in Matthew 13. But before we read the parable, I want to locate this parable in the context of Matthew's um, gospel as a whole. He has carefully arranged this biography, if you will, so that Jesus is presented as the Messiah 
as the promised king of the Jews. And at every step along the way, he's constantly pointing his mostly Jewish audience back to the Old Testament prophecies and promises that gave rise to their hope and their expectation in the first century of a coming king, a unifying, conquering king who would um, defeat Rome, their enemy, and who would set up God's kingdom in God's land under God's rule of justice, righteousness, and peace. In their minds, God's kingdom was tangible, it was earthbound, and it fulfilled all their hopes and dreams. And they weren't wrong about that. So John the Baptist comes along in chapter 3 with a message. Repent, he says, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then he baptized Jesus. And remember what happened. The the heavens opened up and the spirit of God came down on Jesus. And a voice from heaven announced, this is my beloved son. And then Jesus starts his teaching and healing ministry with the same message as John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so the people were meant to understand, we are meant to understand that the kingdom of God had come in the person of God's son, Jesus, who was in fact the long-awaited king, not just of Israel, but of the world. And so we would expect some pretty dramatic things to start happening, right? And they do, and they don't. Through Jesus' miracles that he was doing everywhere and his teachings, including those three chapters in Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount, God's reign was breaking through into the world and Jesus was attracting all kinds of attention. But not all of it was good. By chapter 12, people are pretty confused about who Jesus is. The Pharisees, who were very influential Um, group of people, the the crowds looked up to them. They thought he couldn't possibly be the Messiah because he was breaking Sabbath laws and traditions. And they even accused him of being empowered by Satan to heal people and to cast out demons. Um, And even Jesus' own family thought he was a little bit off his nut, according to Mark's gospel. And Jesus shockingly tells his, his disciples, you all, you are my family those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Now, if the Messiah is supposed to be this unifying figure, ushering in a whole new kingdom, things aren't really shaping up that way, are they? So as chapter 13 begins, the crowds start gathering again, and they come from all over the place. And Jesus has to get in a boat so they can all see him and hear him. And he starts telling them stories one after the other. I think there's eight of them in Matthew. And he tells these stories about everyday people and things. Farmers and merchants, seeds and weeds, pearls and swine, nets and fish. And all of these stories were designed to to reveal to the people something about himself and something about the kingdom and something about how to live in the world related to him. Okay, so let's read the parable again. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell on the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. 
Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was shown. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So you've done your homework. You've read Jesus' interpretation of the parable. Let's go ahead and just identify the elements, okay? So we know that the sower is Jesus because we know that the seed is the message of the kingdom that Jesus has been preaching everywhere. And I just want to pause a minute and talk about the seed, the talk about the message, because I think our tendency as evangelicals has been over the years to sort of compress the gospel into a few short statements and a decision. And it goes something like this. God loves you. Jesus died for you. If you will confess your sins and trust in Jesus, he will forgive your sins and you will go to heaven when you die. And all of that is doctrinally true. And it is precious to us and it is beautiful. And I do hope that every single one of you have trusted in Jesus as your savior from sin and that you know you're bound for heaven one day. But I just got to say, that is a mere skeleton of what Jesus was all about, what Jesus was preaching everywhere he went. At this point, you know, Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. Of course, he hadn't said anything about the cross, much less developed a doctrine of salvation. What he was doing was, was inviting people to come be with him, to follow him. In Matthew 11, just a few pages back, he said to the people, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How beautiful is that? Jesus isn't calling us to a simple decision, although it starts with that. He is calling us to a whole new way of being in the world, the way he was in the world as a beloved child of his heavenly father, fully submitted to his will and his ways that are loving and just and redemptive and that bring healing and wholeness to ourselves and to others. He's calling us to belong to a new kind of family where everyone is actively seeking to know and to do God's will as best they can in the strength that he gives us. And when we mess up, there is forgiveness and there is restoration. That's the kingdom life. And it is earthy and it is gritty and it is complicated and it is beautiful. Ultimately, we know that the kingdom of God is nothing short of the whole world set right. And that will happen when Jesus comes again. But until then, Jesus was and is calling people not to a simple decision, but to full-on discipleship. Okay, I just had to get that off my chest. So let's get back to the sower and the seed, okay? <laughs> Jesus is the Galilean farmer who is reaching into his bag and he's scattering the seed abroad onto all kinds of soil. And we might wonder why the farmer didn't plow up the ground first, right? But this is a parable. It's not about literal agriculture, and it's not primarily about the sower in this case. Jesus wants us to focus on the soil. It's the only variable in the whole parable. And Jesus says that the soil represents the condition of our hearts. 
And he knew that within the crowd of people standing on the shore listening to his story, that there would be different responses to his messages based on what was going on in people's hearts. And so let's um, take Jesus' interpretation of these different soils one at a time. So verses 18 and 19. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. This is the seed sown along the path. So first soil is hard packed. It represents people who have no openness at all to Jesus. And so because of that, they simply cannot understand the message. You can tell them, you can tell them, and they're like, they don't get it. Um, Likely, on that day, Jesus had in mind the Pharisees, who were probably standing there with their arms crossed because they had already written Jesus off as an imposter and a tool of the devil. But the crowds really looked up to the Pharisees as their spiritual leaders. And so it, it wouldn't be easy for them to start following Jesus and not, the, and not the Pharisees. And Jesus knew that. And he was essentially calling them, challenging them to think for themselves, to look at the evidence of the miracles, to listen with new ears to his message. Because each one is responsible for their own lives and how they will respond to God's message. Why do you think some people are hard-hearted toward Jesus today? I think sometimes because of who they've been following, right? Parents, friends, teachers. Indeed, our whole world these days pours lots of messages out all the time about who we are and what we ought to believe, about all kinds of things. And so it's really important that we turn to God's word for guidance and allow his word to do its work in our hearts so it can work its way into our lives, despite what anyone else says or does. King Solomon wrote these words to his son in Proverbs 4.23. He said, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Another reason for hard hearts is pride and self-centeredness. I only want what I want, and ultimately that means independence from God. I'll run my own life. I want to live by my own rules. I don't need God. Thank you very much. Jesus says that kind of thinking is for the birds. Really, he said that. (laughs) The destiny of the seed along the path is food for birds. The birds, birds in scripture sometimes symbolize evil. And so Jesus says that the seed that bounces off that hard path Um, is picked up by the evil one and carried away. And so the evil one is another character in this parable whom Mark identifies in in his parallel as Satan. Um, All four Gospels depict Jesus and his kingdom of light and Satan and his kingdom of darkness as in conflict with each other. Satan was and is a real enemy who opposes Jesus and and his whole aim is to keep people in spiritual darkness. He is still operative in the world. Peter characterized him as a prowling, a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom whom he may devour. Jesus said he's a liar and the father of lies and uh, he's a deceiver. He tries to woo us away from God through temptations specifically designed to target our weaknesses. He even had the gall to tempt Jesus in his most vulnerable times. 
can read about that in Matthew 4. And do you remember how Jesus responded to those temptations? He went back to God's word. He clung to God's word and allowed God's word to inform his response to those temptations. Just a reminder that Jesus has already defeated Satan through his death and resurrection. He has no authority over you. And one day Jesus will put Satan where he belongs for all eternity. But until then, resist. Resist him with the word. Maybe you know someone whose heart is hard and you are very concerned about them. You've told them about Jesus. You know they've, they've heard in different times, maybe multiple times, and they just want nothing to do with him. I know several people like that. Maybe that used to describe you at one time. But here you are. And you may not call yourself a follower of Jesus yet, and that's okay, but your very presence here means that you are open to learning something that God may want to teach you. See, it doesn't matter where a person starts. What matters is where they ultimately end up. And for most people, it takes numerous exposures to the gospel before they're even able to be in a place to hear it and understand it and respond. So never write off hard-hearted people and never stop praying for them. There is always hope. Well, let's look at the next kind of soil. Verse 20, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Now we know that Jesus preached his gospel kingdom in a hostile world. His path to the kingdom led him to a cross. And he told his followers they too would have to pick up their cross and follow him. And in fact, many of his disciples then and over the centuries have literally faced crosses and persecutions of all sorts. Exclusions from family and communities, confiscation of property, torture, and even martyrdom. That's why Jesus said in Luke 14 to count the cost of being his disciple. Because it's not for the faint of heart. In our day and culture, we don't suffer much because we're Christ followers. But that is slowly changing. I tend to think of the person characterized by shallow soil as one who perhaps heard a um, shallow version of the gospel, even a false gospel that promised that life would go easier for them if they accepted Jesus, maybe he would heal them, maybe he would cause their business to prosper or just their life in general. But you know Jesus never promised that. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 6, each day has trouble of its own. And in John 16, he said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Or maybe this is a person who grew up in church in a stable Christian environment, always had everything they need. Life went well for them. And then they got older and things happened. Hardships, tragedies came and they were surprised and caught off guard and they were angry and they start to question what they'd always believed about God and, and even turn away from him. And I get that. Sometimes our circumstances don't reflect what we've always believed about um, a good and loving God. And we lack the ability to see beyond those circumstances to any possible good outcome. 
God doesn't always spare us from pain in this world, although I think he does protect us from a lot more than we'll ever be aware of. But he is with us in the pain. He is near to the brokenhearted, and he gives us the strength to endure and the hope um, that one day everything that is broken in us and the world will be whole again. And that's why we need to lean into him instead of falling away from him. As Barry said on Sunday, God isn't finished writing our stories yet. So hold on to the end and let that truth, that hope, work its way into your heart so it can work its way into your life. All right, the third kind of soil is described in one verse, 22. It says, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. This is probably one of the easiest to understand in our world because although specifics are different, some things are common in every culture at every time, right? The worries and cares of life. Will I be able to pay my bills this month? Will COVID ever go away? What will the future be like for my children and grandchildren? Will I ever get married? Will my, uh, my husband and I aren't getting along? My teenager's going off the rails. My job is demanding, and there, there are deadlines to meet, and I'm so busy, and I'm so tired. And so often the first thing to go is our daily time with God and his word and in prayer, and before we know it, it's been weeks and months. The deceitfulness of wealth. Hmm. It's like a thorny vine that chokes our spiritual vitality. And you know, no matter where you are on the economic spectrum, you struggle with this on some level, and so do I. We all think, if I just had a little more money, (laughs) I could do this or have that. I would feel more secure. Uh, I'd just be happier. So we work harder, we work longer, we we keep more for ourselves, we obsess over the news and maybe stock market reports, um, especially in hard economic times like this, uncertainty. And even if you think that money really isn't a priority in your life, you still have to deal with it, right? You still have to trust God with it. There are decisions we have to make with our money, about our money, that Jesus says reveals our true heart. And we have a parable about that, so stay tuned. (laughs) Um, But I just want to point out that material concerns and pursuits can so easily crowd out our ability to hear God's word in a a way that allows it to come into our hearts and work its way into our lives. And I want to say that Jesus deeply cares about our worries and our financial well-being. And so his kingdom call to us is to lay down those things at his feet and trust him with all of it. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't worry about these things. Saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? What would it look like for you to stop striving and truly trust God with your life worries, your job, your retirement, your children, your finances, your health, 
and especially all those things you can't control anyway. It would look like a daily decision, a daily surrender to pursue God's kingdom above all else. Well, we've looked at the first three kinds of soil. They're all a little different uh, in their own way, but they all have the same outcome. No fruit. That first soil never accepted the message at all, but the other two kind of did, right? And I know the question comes up. What does it mean that they fell away and that the message was choked? Did they lose their salvation? And I just got to say, I don't think that's the point of this parable at all, but I'm going to address the question because I know it comes up in our minds. And it's been a hotly debated question over the years. And um, I don't really have time to go in depth, but basically it falls into two camps based on two astute theologians from way back in the day. And the one camp says, yes, a person can lose their salvation um, after they've, uh, if they reject Jesus after they've once professed him. The other camp says, nope, once you're saved, once you've trusted in Christ, you're always saved. That's the camp IBC is in, and I am too, because Jesus said twice in John 10, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Apostle John later wrote about some people in his early church community who had turned their backs on Jesus. And John's understanding was that those people had never genuinely uh, become followers of his in the first place. He wrote in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, we don't know if any of those people that John talked about uh, might have repented at some point and come back into the fold at a later time. We don't know. It's a possibility. It's a real possibility. Just because someone seems to walk away from their faith for a time doesn't mean that they won't eventually return. I know lots of people that would say that is their story. And there's a parable about that that we're going to do, so stay tuned. With God, true repentance is always available. It's always the way back. When the disciples asked Jesus why he spoke in parables, he didn't answer them directly. He just pointed out what was happening. He said those whose hearts were open were able to understand. Those whose hearts were hard could not. And so the parables both reveal truth and conceal it, depending on the condition of one's heart. And that's how it's always been. You can just hear Jesus almost lament when he quoted Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in verse 15. He was quoting God's words to Isaiah, and God was saying through Isaiah, For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. God's heart is to heal our brokenness. 
caused by sin, but not everyone will turn to him and let him heal them. Sometimes we don't let God heal our hearts. And I think that breaks God's heart. God gives every human being the dignity of choice. And when people choose to seek God, they find him. And, when he, and he gives them understanding of his will and his ways. And the more we seek, the more we find. And the more we live out, the more fruit we produce. And that brings us to the last type of soil. Verse 18, or verse 23. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Now, of course, the goal of every farmer is to get results, right? He wants that seed to do what it was designed by its creator to do, take root, develop a stable root system so that it can grow into a healthy, full-grown, mature, um, fruit-bearing, life-giving plant. And Jesus desired that every soul on the shore that day would receive his message so that they could become all God intended them to be, fruitful, productive, image-bearers of his Father in heaven. That is the good that God wants for all of us. John, uh, Jesus said in John 10, I have come to give you life so that you may have it to the full. And he wasn't talking about heaven by and by. He was talking about life right now in this world as broken as it is. And the thing about spiritual life is that it multiplies and it produces more life as we walk in fellowship with Jesus day by day. We become more like him. We bear his light so that others may come into his light. Those are just other ways of talking about bearing fruit. Jesus said in John 15, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is what Jesus is after, an intimate, mutually abiding relationship with each one of us so that we can live fruitful, productive lives. And as Barry taught us on Sunday, he has created each one of you intentionally and every part of you with a purpose so that you can play the part in this world that only you can play. The, starting, the startling element in this story, in this parable to Jesus' hearers, would have been the harvest. The average yield of seed in ancient Israel was about 10%. So a 30 or 60-fold harvest would have been reason for a party. But a 100-fold harvest, I mean, that was beyond their wildest dreams. It was a clear sign of God's extravagant abundance. And that is God's extravagant invitation to us today. And because we are made in God's image, we have agency. We can choose. And we do make lots of choices every single day. And as the saying goes, in the end, those choices make us. So when it comes to our lives bearing fruit, don't we all want it to the max? I do. I had the sweet joy of attending our dear Betty, Sla Betty Slackney's celebration of life on Saturday. Hers was a life that bore fruit, much fruit, because she walked with Jesus for many years. Much was said of her joy, 
her prayers, her humble service, with the emphasis that none of what she did was to earn God's favor, but it was out of her pure love for Jesus. She had trusted in his love and in his grace all along the way as the source of her life, both here and in eternity. And she bore much fruit. And when I left that service, I said, how do I live a life like that? Well, I think Jesus is telling us here. We daily attend to our hearts. I love the sermon series we're in on Sundays because uh, we're talking about being emotionally healthy um, in our spirituality. And Barry's emphasis this week was on self-awareness, if you were there. Self-awareness is how we begin to cultivate the good soil of our hearts because it allows us to see what's really there. The hard places in our hearts, the rocks and the thorns that need to be plowed up and cleared away. And if we're willing to be honest with ourselves and with God, we'll be able to see and know if we really are growing and producing fruit or not. It's easy to come to Bible study in church on a regular basis and never let the word affect anything that we do. Self-examination, self-awareness helps us to see where we are. And because I think we don't often take the time to examine our hearts as much as we need to, I'd like to close our time together with some guided reflection time and prayer. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and just sit in God's presence for a bit. And I'm going to ask you some probing questions for you to talk to Jesus about according to each of the four soils that we've talked about. These questions are not meant to shame or to produce guilt, but to help us do some inventory and to assess the condition of our hearts. Because when we open our hearts to Jesus, he holds them very tenderly. He never shames or condemns. He speaks softly, so listen closely. And if he says something to your heart during this time, I would suggest you jot it down so that you can remember it later and can continue to reflect on it and allow it to change you. So let's bow our heads and hearts in prayer. Just take a deep breath in and out and just sit with Jesus. Ignore any distractions. Ask him to reveal what's in your heart today. Psalm 145:18 The Lord is near to all who call on him to all who call on him in truth Where did you find yourself in Jesus parable today Are there any areas of hardness in your heart that need to be broken up Any patterns of sin you're holding on to Places you haven't been willing to let God speak into. Areas where you're trusting in your own way instead of God's. In your own sufficiency instead of His. Confess those things to the Lord right now as a way of breaking up the hard soil so His Word can take root and grow in you. God's word says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Receive his forgiveness and grace. Are you suffering in some way tonight, physically, emotionally, spiritually? Have there been setbacks or losses, perhaps old wounds or lies you've believed that have resurfaced lately? Has that hurt caused you to doubt God's love for you, his goodness to you, his power for you and in you? Has it kept you from fully trusting him? God's word says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Ask him to help you perceive his nearness to you and give you the strength to endure with faith. Receive his comfort and assurance. Is your heart filled with all kinds of worries? Do material pursuits consume your time and thoughts? Are they weighing you down and keeping you from enjoying close fellowship with Jesus? Have they hindered your prayers? Why not lay those at his feet right now? God's word says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Receive his peace. Finally tonight, is the soil of your heart open and eager to let God's work word to do its work so that it's working its way into your life more and more are you growing in love are you growing in joy growing in peace growing in patience in kindness in goodness in faithfulness in gentleness and self-control. Do those around you see something or hear something of Jesus in you? Remember that this is a lifelong process. God's word says, I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. Lord Jesus, we do exalt your name this evening. Thank you for this time to sit together with you and with one another. Heal our hearts today. That is what you long to do so that we can live fully alive in you and experience a taste of the kingdom while we wait for your return. Go with us this week, Lord, and help us to be mindful of our hearts and turn them always back to you. And we ask these things in your great name. Amen. You all are dismissed. Have a great week.
and be careful out there, okay? Love y'all.